Hi, everyone. Glad you could join us today. Um, we are in the third part of our series called The Rebellious Bible. And as you can imagine, I have been thinking a lot about what the church needs to hear. There's so much going on. Um, there's so much news coming at us right and left. So I've been praying about what I feel like uh, God uh, wants me to share with all of you. And there's certainly a lot we could talk about in terms of anxiety and fear, faith, and peace, and do we need to switch things up and talk about something other than uh, the Bible? Well, just a couple thoughts. W one of the things is that just about every single conversation uh, that I've had is pandemic-related. Um, everything I'm seeing on the news or on Twitter, on Facebook, it's all about coronavirus. And I, I think it's good to stay up to date and find out what's going on. Um, but and honestly, every email, I, I think every company that I've ever shopped at in the last 15 years has sent me an email about their response uh, to what's going on. So I definitely think it's relevant to think about and talk about and pray about. But honestly, when we think about the Bible and our relationship to the Bible, I think that's incredibly relevant at a time like this. That if we have a well-formed, solid relationship with Scripture, it can only boast, bolster our faith and, and reduce our fear. So I think it's important to continue talking about the Bible in the way that we have in the last uh, few weeks. So I wanted to start off by sharing um, a picture with you. When Corrine and I first met, we were both teenagers. Um, and this is way back in the day, um, long before the internet. It was, the, well, the internet existed, but it was just sort of a uh, uh, kind of a, it felt like a trend. We didn't have uh, very many pictures, <laughs> it seems like, uh, before our, our time when we were married. So here's a picture of us at our wedding. Uh, we weren't very much older than when we met, as you can imagine. So we grew up in the Dark Ages, and if you wanted to talk with a person, there was no opportunity to, you couldn't text. I mean, the word texting hadn't even been invented at this point. Long-distance calling, I mean, you would have to take out a loan to call someone long-distance. It just, none of that happened. None of us could afford pagers. I mean, that was, the cool kids had those. Uh, so what you did is you wrote a letter. You got out a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil, and you sat down and you wrote out your thoughts. You wrote out what you wanted that other person to know. And I'm telling you, I don't think that anything in this day and age can compare with what it's like to walk out to your mailbox and open up the mailbox and reach in, and you have a letter from somebody that you care about. And we get tons of junk mail now, but to get a letter that is addressed to you, that is handwritten, I mean, there is no feeling like that. Now, those of you that remember those days, if you got a letter and it was multiple pages, that was saying something. If you got a letter and they had written on every line and hadn't tried to fill space by, by skipping a line or two, that said something. If you got a letter and it was small, handwritten, multiple pages on the front and the back, you were like, whoa, this relationship is getting real. This is serious. And I just don't think getting an emoji via a text can give anybody a sense of what it's like to get a letter from someone. Now, it is about the words on the page, but it's about who is behind those words. Who wrote that letter? I mean, that means something. It was an experience. We kicked off this series uh, by making two claims. One, we said the Bible is from God. And we said that that's incredible. That's amazing that we have something that, like, this is a contact point between us 
and God. We have this thing from God, this information from God. And two, we said that it doesn't conform to our expectations. That when we open this up, or if somebody were to say, hey, what would you expect to see from God? It wouldn't be exactly this. The Bible defies our expectation, and that can be a good thing. So I think the topic that we're talking about today, this unexpected nature of Scripture, is just no more evident than what we're discussing uh, right now. And I'm, I'm hopeful, I don't know, but I'm hopeful that some of you maybe have had a little bit of time to sit down and read. I know that a lot of you are probably more busy, uh, there's more uncertainty, and you haven't quite figured out how to navigate everything, but I'm wondering if maybe a few of us have found our evenings freed up a little bit, or our weekends aren't quite as hectic, and you found an opportunity to say, what, what do I really need to reflect on? What do I really need to think about? And maybe you've begun to dig into Scripture. Well, I don't know if that's the case, but I think most of us that have read the Bible or read through the Bible have had this experience. You decide you're going to read it, and you begin right there in Genesis, and then things start to get weird. Um, let me give you just a quick example. As you're, as, you're, as you're cruising through the Bible, you read Genesis, there's some strange things in there, but you get to the book of Exodus, and all right, you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, or uh, uh, The Prince of Egypt, but in Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, if you happen to make it all the way there, you're going to see a verse of scripture that says this, do not cook a goat in its mother's milk. All right, okay, this is the information that God wants me to have. All right, very interesting. Um, or maybe you read even further and you get to the book Song of Solomon in uh, chapter 4, verse 12. This is a great Valentine sentiment if you're writing a card to your loved one. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep, just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has a twin, not one of them is alone. Maybe you keep reading and you get to 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Just two verses. This is this interesting little tiny story right there in the middle of, uh, of these two accounts in 2 Kings. And it's talking about this guy named Elisha. He has just been given the mantle of the prophet of God. And some boys come out and start making fun of him being bald. And 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 24 says this. He turned around. This is Elisha looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. What? What? This is not what I would expect to get from God. This is not, this is not anything like I would expect to get from God. And that's not even mentioning that the entire Bible starts off with a talking snake or that books like the book of Ezekiel. I mean, just read chapter 1 of the book of Ezekiel. It's so strange, and it just gets stranger from there. Or if you, this is something that some of us think about, sometimes you read stories in the Scripture, and you're like, well, that's, that's genocide, or, or that's slavery. Or then you see these heroes of the Bible, but they're engaged in activities like polygamy, and you're wondering, what in the world? What is this? The Bible is a strange book. Now, I love Scripture, and that certainly helps when you have a job like mine, but I don't think that there's any denying that the Bible is strange, and that strangeness can cause us to have a couple different reactions. Now, some of you are saying, okay, wait, 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 you're cherry-picking. Yes, the Bible has some strange things that we don't completely understand, but you've, you've skipped right over Psalm 23. You've skipped right over all the beautiful, wonderful, uh, interesting parts, and you're just cherry-picking uh, the, the, the strangest parts. That's true to make a point. That is true. That is what I'm doing. But they do exist, and you don't have to look very hard to see weird, confusing, 
things in the Bible that, that we struggle uh, to make sense of. And so I think when you come across these, if you're reading through your scriptures and you come across these, people tend to have one of two responses. Maybe an extreme response for a lot of people is that they kind of rebel against scripture, that the things that they can't wrap their minds around, they get them so worked up and they don't know what to do with them that it can be a serious challenge to their faith. And I, don't, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people where they present their arguments in the form of a question. And it's not necessarily that they're asking just this logical, well-thought-through question. What they're saying is, you don't really believe that a fish swallowed a man. You don't really believe in a virgin birth. You don't really believe that a snake spoke and tempted the first two humans. You don't really believe that, do you? What they're doing is, the unstated implication here is that a well-educated, sophisticated person simply cannot take the Bible seriously. It is not something to be thoughtfully considered and worked through. It's something to be rejected. And that's one response, and that's very extreme. And I'm assuming if you're listening to me this morning, that's not where you are. But I think the more common response for most Christians is not that we rebel against it, especially the strange parts, but that we retreat away from the parts of the Bible that we don't know what to do with. It's like uh, certain parts of town that maybe you don't go to uh, at night or certain places that are unfamiliar. I think a lot of Christians just uh, avoid the strange parts and they stick with the parts of the Bible that make them feel comfortable and make them feel safe and make them feel good. And so maybe they read the story of the flood and they stop right when, the, when God sends the rainbow as a sign of his covenant. But they don't read Genesis chapter 9 where Noah plants a vineyard, makes wine, gets drunk, and then something weird happens in a cave that we just don't read that part. That part of the story in Genesis chapter 9 has never once appeared in a children's story. Rightfully so. But we like to edit out the parts of the Bible that make us feel a little weird or feel a little uncomfortable that we don't know what to do with. And so I think a lot of Christians, they don't reject scripture, they just stay away from the things that they find confusing and they don't know how to handle. And I think it's fair to point out that for us, the strange parts of scripture can be a roadblock in our relationship with God. The parts of scripture where we're, it's confusing and it's boring and why do I have to read these gene genealogies or these rules? What do I do with that? They can literally be, for some people, a roadblock in their relationship with God because scripture does not work like we expect it to. Okay. We're going to try to do two things today. One, I'm going to try to give you a few concepts that should stabilize our understanding of the stranger parts of Scripture. There are things that we have to keep in mind as we engage with God's Word, especially when it doesn't make sense to us. And then secondly, I'm going to attempt to give us a couple tools that as we read those sections of Scripture, it helps us navigate rather than avoid those things that we don't know what to do with. So let's talk about this first. Let's stabilize. Let's get our feet under us a little bit when we think about the odd parts of Scripture. It's crucial to keep this in mind. Number one, our relationship with the Bible should start and end with Jesus. Our relationship with the Bible should start and end with Jesus. Now, I know I say that, and it sounds cliche, but this is the most crucial thing that we can know about all of Scripture. Jesus was a big fan of the Bible. He liked it. He quoted it a lot. 
He taught about it. He was a rabbi. He was a Bible teacher. And we would like to be able to take Jesus and just kind of leave all the strangeness and things that we don't completely understand behind. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. In fact, if you have your Bibles and you can turn them to the book of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching away and he knows that his explanation of the old covenant is going to be so different and so radical and so much more accurate that people are going to think that he's just making it up or that he's throwing away the old covenant. And so he says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. And that was a first century Hebrew way of referring to what we would call the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. I think it probably is helpful to call it the Hebrew Bible. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. He says, I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. Now you think about that and you're like, well, are, fulfill them. Even that one in Exodus about the goats and the, the mother's milk. You're, how are, what? What does that mean? But he's trying to help us understand that he is the culmination of this old covenant, what we refer to as an old covenant, and he, he is the point of scripture. And this is exactly what Steve talked about uh, last week, that Jesus views scripture as a story that leads to himself, that he is the second half of the movie, that he is the, the grand climax of the story. This is a very big deal, and it should dictate the way we engage with scripture. This has helped me so much to think about, and, and, uh, and I hope it helps you, and maybe it raises some questions for you. But the Bible has some very strange parts, very strange parts. But my entry point into Scripture is not the strange parts. I don't have to start with Elisha and the bears and the 42 boys and then figure out how that validates my understanding of Jesus. I start with Jesus, and I know that Jesus took the scriptures seriously, and therefore I can wrestle with these stories that otherwise are strange and difficult because I know that Jesus found value in them and that they helped shape, shape Jesus' understanding of what God was doing in the world. I think that's so important. So it starts and ends with Jesus. Number two, I think this is really important for us to understand. It would be strange if we didn't find the Bible strange. Um, imagine you found one of those letters that Corrine and I had written back and forth to each other uh, when we first met. It would be embarrassing for all of us, I'm sure. Um, and I, I forgot what life was like back in 1997, so I had to do a little Google research. And honestly, if you use the word Google for Patrick in 1997, he would have no clue what you meant. That's how much things have changed in the last 23 years. But here's what was going on in 1997, and I don't know whether or not these things made an appearance in our letters or not. It would surprise me if they did, but who knows. We were very concerned as a society about the ozone layer. That was a big deal. There was evidently a hole in the ozone layer, and every time somebody uh, used hairspray, they were making the hole bigger. That was a big deal. That was our problem that we were dealing with environmentally back in 1997. Um, the band Hanson was huge. Hanson, you remember those guys? You remember their big hit, Mbop? Yeah, of course, everybody remembers that. That's what everybody was listening to on their iPods didn't exist. I don't even know what we were listening to uh, back then. Um, the phrase or the, the term heaven's gate referred to a cult that had committed mass suicide, made huge news. 
But if you said the phrase Heaven's Gate outside of the 1997 context, people would be like, I don't know exactly what you're talking about, unless they had that contextual history. Um, evidently, I don't remember this exactly, but Google told me this was true, that people said the, the term fat, P-H-A-T. Like if something was cool, they said it was fat. Now, think about this. That is just two decades ago, 23 years ago, and that is our culture, and it's written in our language, and that is how much has changed just in the last two decades. When we hold this Bible in our hands, we are holding a document that is millennia old, millennia old, 3,500 years at least. It is written to an ancient people. They lived on the other side of the world. They were dealing with different concerns and different worries and a different vocabulary, different language, and they had different priorities and idioms and cultural norms. Of course we find it strange. It would be strange if we didn't find it strange. It would be weird if we didn't find it weird. It's, in fact, I think it's important to point this out. What is amazing is not how strange it is. What is amazing is how relatable it is. How much the Bible, like, we can read it and we can think like, wow, God is the same yesterday and today and will be the same forever. The, hu the struggle of humanity was the same 4,000 years ago that it often is in our lives today. What's amazing is how relatable it is. All right. Number three, the third thing we have to know to kind of get our feet under us when we think about this idea. You remember uh, sixth grade history. I don't know when they teach this, actually. But uh, you remember the Code of Hammurabi? This is this, uh, this stone they found that had all this writing on it. And what it was, it was the, the legal system of the Babylonians in 1754 B.C., that's a long time ago, but it's kind of fascinating because it's sort of concurrent with uh, when a lot of scholars believe the Old Testament was composed. So you're seeing some legal requirements uh, for the Hebrew people, and you're seeing legal expectations for Babylonian people, and it gives you a little insight into what people were thinking and the cultural legal norms of their time. Now, read through it sometime. It's fascinating, but I just want to point out a couple little things. For example, if you broke the law there were different punishments for you depending on your social status. So if you were poor uh, and homeless, punishments were much harsher than if you were rich or well-known. Um, but the Bible comes along and says, hey, you know what? Rich, poor, doesn't matter. You're all made in the image of God. You're all equal before God. And the punishments for violating the law are all the same, no matter who you are, no matter what your background, no matter what your social status. That's pretty amazing. In the Code of Hammurabi, if you were a refugee or you were an immigrant or you were poor, you were out of luck. It didn't matter unless you were a citizen of, of Babylon. But the Bible comes along like Leviticus, one of the books that we like to fly right by. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. That's pretty wild. The Bible, now think about this. The Bible is light years ahead of its time. It is so far advanced that sometimes as a society, we're still catching up with some of the, the expectations God laid out for his people 3,500 years ago. But more than that, and this is really important, um, our ethical framework 
as Americans living here in 2020, our ethical framework, the one that we use to judge the apparent irrelevance of Scripture, is informed and shaped by the Scripture we are judging. In other words, when we look at the Bible and we say, oh, that is outdated and irrelevant, we are, our moral values, our ethics are shaped by this Bible. We are sawing off the branch that we're sitting on. It's pretty incredible when you think about it. So, when you're engaged in Scripture, when you're engaged in the strange parts of Scripture, keep those things in mind. Just understand that this is, this is an, an ancient document written to a different people, and of course there's going to be differences, but it was light years ahead of its time, and we need to assess everything we know in light. We begin and end with Jesus. Okay, so now as we navigate this strange Scripture, let's talk about a couple uh, ideas that we need to keep in mind as we think through this. Number one, the Bible is for us, but it is not to us. I cannot take credit for that statement. It's a wonderful statement, but it's important to keep in mind, even if you read in the New Testament, the Bible is for us, but it's not to us. If you've been around church very long, you've heard the phrase, oh, we need to apply this to our lives. And, and it's a good phrase. It's tricky, though, because on one hand, it's great because we're acknowledging that the Bible can and should be relevant to every part of our lives. Even the millennia-old strange parts should be applied to our lives. The difficulty is, is how? What does that mean? What does that look like? Let me give you an example. So remember that command from Exodus uh, chapter 23? Do not cook a goat in its mother's milk. This is actually one of the more often repeated commands in the Bible. Um, so, for example, some of the commands having to do with stealing and lying only appear once or twice. This command appears three separate times in the Bible. So God was really emphasizing it. And when you read that, you're like, well, wait a second. Okay, this is a perfect example of how the Bible is not relevant to me. How am I supposed to apply that to my life? And this is why we skip over this kind of stuff. We see commands like that, and we're like, well, I don't know what to do, so I'm just moving on. Well, keep this in mind. The people that the Bible was written to were taking this, this, this land of Canaan that already had Canaanites living in it. And as they entered into the land, God was hoping that they would adopt the practices and customs of the people whose land they were taking over. Well, uh, if you do a little bit of research, you find out that one of the religious ceremonies in the worship of the Canaanite god Baal was to take a newborn goat and cook it, boil it in its mother's milk as an offering to that god. So if you were a Hebrew person in 1500 BC and you heard that command you knew exactly what was it it was about you knew that God was warning you to stay miles away from anything that looked like idol worship 3500 years later we're looking at that and we're scratching our heads because the Bible is for us but it's not to us now you still may be thinking like well wait a second okay that's still not relevant to me even if I do interpret that scripture as staying away from idol worship well I mean I live in 21st century suburban America I'm in Minnesota that's totally irrelevant to me because idol worship isn't an issue for me well this is again such a good example of how egocentric we are with the scriptures first of all just because you don't have a statue of a false god in a corner of your living room uh, that you're boiling a newborn goat to 
every Friday or whatever it is, uh, doesn't mean that you don't struggle with putting things where God belongs. It doesn't mean that you don't have a struggle with idol worship. But secondly, listen, idol worship is an issue in most of the world, even today. And so when God is considering the information that he wants humanity to have, of course he's going to talk about this because this is still an issue. In fact, it's an issue in many households in the Twin Cities. So when we start thinking like, well, this isn't relevant to me, we're being so egocentric with Scripture. We've got to remember that the Bible is not to us, but it is for us. Secondly, and this is so important, the strange parts bring the familiar parts into focus. They bring light to the familiar parts. This is always fun when you're watching a movie and someone comes in halfway through the movie and starts asking questions. And you've been enjoying everything so far, and then they start asking questions because they're watching it, and they're totally confused. So, why are the terrorists trying to take over the entire building? Why is Bruce Willis barefoot? Why doesn't the FBI just storm in and, and kick everybody out? Well, because you haven't watched the whole movie. There's a bunch of stuff that you need to know in order to understand what's happening right now. Of course it doesn't make any sense. You came in halfway through. Everyone loves Jesus for the most part. People love his teachings. They love reading about him. They love his ethical values, moral values, to the degree that they agree with him. Everyone wants to be like Jesus. People want to know more about Jesus. People just want to ignore the old law and focus on Jesus. Well, here's the thing. And I could give example after example after example of this. But one of the most pivotal scenes in the life of Christ is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. 40 days, no food. And it's, it's a test. Is Jesus going to overcome? Is Jesus going to defeat temptation in a way that humanity hasn't been able to since the garden? It's a big deal. It's a callback to the very first pages of Scripture. So Jesus faces the, these incredible temptations, this incredible pressure, and he gets the temptation from Satan, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. What Jesus does is he says, it is written... And then he quotes Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. That didn't work, so he's got to go. Satan's got to pull uh, the next trick out of the bag. If you're the son of God, throw yourself from the temple. And Jesus says, it is written. And he quotes Deuteronomy again. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6, 16. Okay, that didn't work. Third try. Okay, well, bow down and worship me. It is written. Worship the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6.13. What does Jesus do when he's facing the most intense pressure and most intense temptation of his life? He quotes Deuteronomy. That's what we all do, right? We all go right to the book of Deuteronomy when we think about overcoming temptation. No, Deuteronomy is a book we would skip right past. We would ignore it. We won't have anything to do with it because it's strange and confusing. It's only the law. In fact, it's not only the law. It's the law repeated. It's already been given to us in Leviticus, and Deuteronomy is just like, hey, you guys, you really need to hear this. But that is what Jesus went to when he was suffering through this temptation. Do you really want to be like Jesus? You should read Deuteronomy. Do you really want victory over temptation? You should read Deuteronomy. There is so much about Jesus, what he said and what he did, that is made clearer when we watch the first part of the movie. 
Now, this is not to say that you can't understand or follow or be a disciple of Jesus without ever having read the Old Testament or without ever having read Scripture. But you need to understand that the, the, the clarity that we get from knowing what the, the, the Scriptures that shaped and formed Jesus, the Hebrew Scriptures, makes such a big difference when we understand what Jesus is saying in the New Testament. If you want to stop and read the Psalm 22 and you'll get a much clearer idea of what was happening to Jesus on the cross if you read Psalm 22. If you read the book of Ezekiel, as strange as it is, you'll get a much clearer idea of what John is trying to tell us in the book of Revelation. But it matters that we've watched the first part of the movie. There are hundreds of hyperlinks in the New Testament that connect to the old, and we could talk about this all day, but we're not going to. I just want us to understand that when we think we want to follow Jesus, but we want to ignore parts of the Bible, that we don't get a clear picture of Jesus because Jesus loved and was shaped by Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. I mean, you can't talk about the Bible without talking about what Paul wrote to Timothy. From infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. And remember, he's just talking about the Hebrew Bible. Um, He goes, which are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for instruction, for conviction, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Do we want to be the fully developed followers of Jesus that God is calling us to be? We cannot ignore the old law. We cannot ignore the strange parts of of scripture so that the son of man may be equipped or complete fully equipped for every good work so i can imagine that some of this may feel overwhelming some of you may feel like okay so evidently i have to be some sort of biblical academic expert to understand any of this i mean i'm just trying to get by day to day and take care of my kids and you're telling me i have to know something about ancient canaanite gods and boiling goats no not saying that at all what i'm maybe this will help I, uh, I love hiking, and I, I feel like every time I say that, it makes me sound like an old man, I guess, which I have to accept that definition. Uh, but my kids don't love hiking. And, and really, truly, it's not for them. They don't love it because they're, they're like, well, this is just like walking, which isn't that much fun, but harder. But it's not, it's not hiking. It's not just walking in a more difficult way through harder terrain. That's not what it's about. What it's about is exploring. What it's about is discovery. I think that the view from the top of the mountain is worth the hike. It's worth the effort. I think we can understand this idea this way. The view of Jesus is worth the work of navigating the strange parts of Scripture. The full, clear picture we get of who Jesus was and what he expected and the way that we should live in following him is worth the work of reading the Old Testament. It's worth the the parts that feel like drudgery and that are hard. I know we just want a summary. Just give me the highlights. Just, you know, tell me the headlines. Arthur Pink wrote in a book about Bible study, he said, no verse of scripture yields its meaning to lazy people. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. God wants us to seek after him. God's like that coach that says, you don't have to be the most talented, but I do want to see some hustle. I want to see you giving it a shot. So I don't know where any of this situation is leaving you. I don't know if you're more busy or less busy. I don't know if you have children at home or your jobs are demanding more of you or you're worried about your finances, but I do know this. You will not regret spending more time getting familiar with Scripture. So here's what you can do. 
Read the strange stuff. Write down notes. Do some research. Have a socially distant conversation with somebody. But I guarantee you that even the strange parts of Scripture will leave you transformed. That's the power of the Word of God. All right, we're going to wrap up in prayer, but I want to encourage you to uh, join us next week. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about something that I think is incredibly important. Mark Twain said, uh, said, it's not the things about the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the things I do. And so we need to remember it's not, some of our struggle is not just the confusing parts. It's the things we know God is asking us to do and challenging us to do. Uh, that we've, we've, we've struggled with. Let's go ahead and say a word of prayer, and, uh, and then we'll let you continue about your day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful uh, to be able to gather. Lord, this is still new and different for so many of us, but we just pray that, that as we've spent just a few moments considering some of the same verses and the same thoughts of the same scripture, that you would draw us together. Lord, help us to reach out to someone today with maybe a word of encouragement or a question uh, or a thought, Lord, but help us to find ways to continue to spur one another on toward love and good works, even though we can't always be in the same room. We love you, God, and I pray that we would be convicted uh, to take this opportunity to learn your scriptures, even the strange ones, to a, a greater degree. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.